This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWRA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And of course, my co-host is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Uh, we've got a special, you might say, emergency episode of the podcast today, and we are recording on Friday the 4th of October. Last night, Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave the 2019 Lowy Lecture at the Sydney Town Hall. It was a fascinating speech, coming on the heels of a few other notable speeches he has given recently. In particular, his AsiaLink address just prior to the G20 Leader Summit back in June, and several speeches during his recent trip to the United States. So we thought we'd try something new and do a rapid reaction episode. If you haven't read Morrison's speech, I encourage you to do so first because it's definitely one of the more interesting and provocative speeches I think you'll ever see from an Australian Prime Minister on foreign policy. Alan and I have some diverging views on it, so it should make for a fun podcast. So let's get right into it. Now, Alan, with remarkable speed, can I say, you have already published your initial reactions to the speech on the Lowy Interpreter blog, and I'll post a link to that in the show notes. You do seem to have some very strong feelings, so perhaps what I'll do is use a few extracts from that piece to structure our discussion. So let me begin with your opening paragraph, and you say, Prime Minister Scott Morrison's Lowy lecture last night marked a clear step away from the sort of Australian foreign policy articulated in the government's 2017 foreign policy white paper and towards the worldview of Trumpism and Brexit. It looked like the trailing away of a decades-long period of Australian commitment to an open, globalising world and a rules-based international order, a phrase not mentioned in the PM's speech. End quote. So what did you mean by this, Alan, and how do you feel about it? Yeah, well, I did write it quickly. I, I think it was po possibly a sense of disappointment, Darren, because as you know from our discussions on earlier podcasts, I thought the last couple of speeches from uh, the PM on foreign policy have been pretty good. But this did seem to me to mark a very clear turning point. And what worried me was that it's a turning point away from something which I have thought for a long time has been a real strength of Australian uh, statecraft. That is, both sides of Australian politics have had a commitment to openness. Both of them, in all the, the, the documents of both Labor and the, and the Coalition, you've had references to this. Now, you know, they had different opinions about the forms of openness, but not about openness itself. But this speech last night for me seemed to close things down. You could see in it the shadows of that speech that Donald Trump made in New York about the ideology of globalism versus the ideology of patriotism. Mm, mm. So, you know, one of the results of that was that the word sovereignty pops up 
uh, I think, uh, four or five times. Now, I, I haven't heard an Australian prime minister use the word sovereignty so often in a speech for a long time. You got attacks on globalism, uh, which I thought were just a bit bizarre, really. A bogeyman designed to frighten, but with no evidence at all of um, any actual harm that these sort of faceless international uh, bureaucrats have been mm. uh, have been doing to Australia. So mm. it's sort of like a line from the UK. If you're a Brexiteer, then you can uh, you can savage the uh, the Brussels uh, bureaucrats. But it just I, I just didn't seem to work at all for me uh, here. I thought it was unnecessarily defensive. I mean, there's a very strong line in it where he uh, he says, uh, sort of echoing Howard, you know, we will decide what our interests are, uh, as though there's any doubt whatever that Australia can decide what its interests are and does decide what its interests are. And, you know, this, this government has set them out at great length. So I thought that it marked a change and a change which I don't think was uh, healthy in what has been until now this coalition government's views of Australia in the world. So, Darren, tell me where we disagree. <laughs> yeah, interesting, Alan. I, when you were talking about Brexit and how this is sort of a natural thing for a Brexiteer to say, what came to mind for me was that in the Brexit case, there is a concrete policy decision on the table um, and and the consequences of adopting you know, the rhetoric you know, or putting the rhetoric into practice are, you know, are far more significant. And I think that's where I come from because I, you know, in contrast, you sort of like the speech. And the reason I liked it was possibly more as a political scientist than as a, you know, a practitioner or, or studier of foreign policy or Australian foreign policy. And the reason I liked it was because I could see a clear theory of politics, a clear theory of the political causes behind the crisis of the rules-based order, which I think we both agree exists. And that theory is that there is a lack of legitimacy among what Morrison would think of as the equivalent of his quiet Australians. You remember, listeners, that, that of course, is who he thanked for his election victory. The equivalent of those quiet Australians around the Western world. As we've discussed on the podcast previously, there are many people who believe that the system, quote-unquote, isn't working for them. And the result of this is that millions of people have voted for and have supported populist, anti-establishment uh, politicians and movements. You know, Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, Jair Bolsonaro, Matteo Salvini, Viktor Orban, etc. And of course, we saw 52% of Britons vote to leave the EU. And even if we put you know, populism to one side... I think these sentiments do provide political cover for even more establishment leaders to trash or at best ignore international institutions when it suits them politically. And so I think consistent with what I've said on the podcast before, I think this political theory does a good job of diagnosing the problem. 
Now, I don't think this is the fault of the rules-based order necessarily. There are many other factors that go into this sense of, of grievance and helplessness. You know, you've got globalization. Oh, poor old, poor old bloody rules-based order. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> this but... is not the fault of the rules-based order. Well, yeah. It's, uh, and so you've got globalization and outsourcing. <laughs> you've got technological change and automation. You've got migration crises. And you've, of course, got cultural upheaval. But all of these things are creating a sense of hopelessness, frustration and grievance. And you know, I think of a, a survey result I read you know, in the last few months which talked about how you know, for the first time in decades, you know, adults these days do not believe that their children will have better lives than themselves. And that's been a, a factor that's been true since the beginning of the post-war era. And so it's these kinds of sentiments that have caused these political responses. And so even though we agree that the rules-based order is not the problem, it is a convenient scapegoat. And therefore, it becomes collateral damage in this backlash. Whether we like it or not, that is the political problem we face. And the backlash is against the order, against the establishment, against globalist elites. And so this is where I think I disagree with you a bit in framing Morrison's speech as being squarely within the Trumpian orbit or in the Trumpian direction. Because I, I'm trying at least to draw a distinction between diagnosing the basis of Trump's political appeal and actually agreeing with it, and, and not only agreeing with it, but endorsing some of Trump's most destructive tendencies. And I'm not sure that Morrison does the latter. I think he understands, uh, as do most Australians, that the rules and institutions are vital for Australia's you know, welfare, our peace and prosperity. And his criticisms of the order are therefore imprecise, uh, vague almost. You know, it's more like he's setting a tone rather than targeting a specific agenda or institution in contrast to, to Brexit, for example, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That may be right. And he does uh, say that, you know, our interests are not served by isolationism and protectionism. He does uh, give a tick to something that he calls practical globalism. <laughs> yes. When you see the adjective practical before <laughs> a noun in a, in a coalition speech, uh, you know you've got to pay attention. But he also says it does not serve our national interests when international institutions demand conformity rather than independent cooperation on global issues. Now, that doesn't make very much uh, sense to me. Surely a rules-based order does demand conformity with the, uh, with the rules. Of course, and it's interesting... Otherwise, that, you can't have one. Yes, of course, and if we, if we think back to his Chicago speech, which he gave after we had recorded uh, our episode covering the White House visit, and he gave a speech at the, you know, the, the Chicago Institute of Global Affairs or Chicago Council of Global Affairs, he actually repeats the phrase, but we do need rules, twice. Um, and, and so he's offering a defence on US soil of the need for rules. And what I think he's doing here is, while we may find it a bit unsavoury, he's giving a tonal rhetorical critique that resonates. And I think there's a good reason for doing that. Because I think before you can garner or cultivate the support of your domestic public, of your voters, you need to be able to em empathise with people who are hurting. And so this involves unsavoury but I think unavoidable rhetorical criticism of the order even if it's not justified because what Morrison is saying many many people believe again scapegoating perhaps but those beliefs are real and they are a political problem for those of us who care about the order and so to lead these people 
to lead Australia, and, and, and this applies, I think, around, around the world, you need, to, you need those who are sceptical of the order, who are sceptical of globalism, to believe that you share their concerns. And so I think once you've done that, you then need to frame your policy response as empowering them. And this is why I think Morrison is focusing so much on sovereignty, but also on Australia's agency. And he talked much more about that at the, at the, in the AsiaLink speech. You know, he is saying that you, we can do this, we can do things that are in our interests, and this is to you know, refer back to your point on national interests, but, and it's only going to be in our interests. You have the power, you have the control, we will, we will seek to, to improve the order, to gain benefits from it. And only once you've done those two things, you've empathised with their frustrations, you have given, empowered them and given them agency, then can you make the case that the order is actually you know, a positive thing, um, but in doing so you need to show how clearly and tightly the rules and institutions of the international system do things that are relevant and beneficial to the lived experience of Morrison's quiet Australians. So you're there, you are yeah. saying that the order is there to serve them, It acts, and Australia acts abroad to empower and improve the lives of people at home. And he does this, for example, by saying one in five Australian jobs depend on international trade. To finish off here, I, I don't think Morrison's speech is as inward-looking as you say. You know, he's been constantly talking about the need for Australia to get involved, as you said, to be practical. Um, he mentions standards, and, and that, and he's insisting, you know, probably um, more so than I would argue, that we do have agency to shape our international environment. He's simply framing the terms of our engagement in ways that are politically more palatable to his quiet Australians. Am I, am I being too kind? Yeah, I, look, I think you are. I, I think you are because I think you can do that same reassurance in different ways without using that sort of uh, language about the sinister uh, the sinister globalists. And the interesting thing is that even, you know, according to the um, Lowy poll and other polling, Australians are not actually all that horrified by globalisation. Levels of support for it here are higher than in most other parts of the world, and that's understandable because the Australian economy is structured differently from that of the United States. You don't have the, you know, the rust belt problems uh, here that you have there. So alienation certainly exists in Australia, but it's based on uh, different uh, sources, I think. Yeah, I, I'm a confused as well about this fact because it would be a speech that would be you know, far better received in, in, in Trump country. Uh, and yet when he went you know, to Trump country, or at least as close as, pretty close to Trump country when he went to Chicago and, and was talking about the Midwest, um, he gave a, a more internationalist speech. And so I'm trying to understand, is he trying to burnish his sceptical of globalisation and globalism credentials to the world in Australia? Or is he... Is he trying to sort of situate himself for a long-term program of, of order building by by establishing his credentials to a sceptical Australian public, albeit one that supports the order? So I don't. Yeah, that's the that is a confusion for me. I don't understand. It would have made more sense to give the you know the Chicago speech in Australia in some ways, and and the and the and the Lowy speech uh, in Chicago. Um, so anyway, something to to, to muse upon. Uh, to move on, Alan. Then if I could move to a second quote from your interpreter piece where you wrote quote no future Australian Prime Minister will be able to outdo Scott Morrison in rhetorical support for the American alliance end quote 
Alan, in, in my lifetime, I've seen multiple prime ministers offer many effusive words in praise of the alliance. John Howard to Bush, uh, Julia Gillard to Obama. And indeed, our friend Nick Bisley wrote a great journal article uh, in 2013 on this very topic, anchored around Gillard's description of Australia as, quote, an ally for all the years to come, end quote. Is Morrison's language that different? Um, or is it more that you found such language more problematic given who was sitting in the White House? Well, on on the latter point, yeah, I, I do think the current document makes it a bit more difficult to keep a straight face when you know when you're talking about common values and and so on. Uh, look, you're right. You're right about the others. This is there's a long you know tradition of excessive sentimentality in Australian <laughs> 100 uh, years rhetoric. Of about, Alan, 100 years of mateship, Alan. 100 years of mateship. 100 years of mateship, all of that. My only point here was that from what Morrison said, there is nowhere else to go. His quote was, the US alliance is our past, our present, and our future. That is our alpha and omega our beginning and our end. So there is just nowhere else to go. So no one who comes after him will be able to outdo uh, Scott Morrison on that uh, on that particular line. Mm. And is there any significance behind it? I mean, do you think that he is signalling any policy differences or a policy agenda? that might mean more with the US? I mean, remember, I recall our discussion of the Osmin meetings uh, mm. in, in, in Sydney a few months ago uh, and this just question of our engagement um, with the maritime security operation in the Gulf and Morrison being very careful in, in yeah, how he was committing yeah. to it. So again, I come back to, is this just sort of rhetoric to make people feel more comfortable? I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Well, I, I don't know either, but... It is, again, another reason why this speech seems to be such an interesting turning point. It is different from the very careful language that he was using about the uh, uh, maritime uh, commitment in the, uh, in the Strait of Hormuz. Why? I, I don't know, but it does show no distancing whatever from the Trump White House, and maybe that's a, you know, maybe that's a, a point to it. Mm. Well, that of course then is a good transition into my next quote, which brings China into the into the frame. You wrote, Alan, at the very end of your piece that quote, when the Prime Minister concludes that quote, even during an era of great power competition, Australia does not have to choose between the United States and China. End quote. And you continue, after a speech that more than any other by a recent Australian Prime Minister has done just that, it seems less like wishful thinking than deliberate obfuscation. So following on from this speech, Alan, where are we on China policy? And has the Prime Minister made things even more difficult for himself and for Australia in managing our relationship with Beijing? I think it's certainly a, it seemed like a toughening of the position from the uh, from the Asia Link speech that he gave a few uh, weeks ago, uh, it was very sort of bluntly stated. There wasn't any. Uh, there were you know few adjectives around uh, around China. A list of China's economic achievements, mm. but all in the context of 
China needing to change the terms of its engagement with the world rather than the world needing to change any of the terms mm. of uh, of its engagement mm. with uh, China. Now, you know, as we discussed last time, uh, they're perfectly good arguments uh, to say that in things like the WTO, we do need uh, adjustments to cope with the sheer scale of uh, of China's rise and growth. But there was nothing in the speech itself that would get us closer to that. It was almost as if he'd given up the idea of anything coming of the Australia-China relationship. I've just got one more question on this emergency podcast of ours, um, and I want to have a little bit of fun here. I'm going to take a quote from the PM's speech last night that did not make it into your piece. So Morrison said, quote, Elite opinion and attitudes have often become disconnected from the mainstream of their societies, and a sense of resentment and disappointment has emerged, end quote. I think whether we like it or not, Alan, you and I are part of the elites Morrison is talking about. And Morrison is certainly right that we are both ardent cheerleaders of the rules-based order. And I suppose many, if not most, aspects of what he and Donald Trump call globalism. I mean, some of my best friends work for the unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy that he criticised in the speech and, and bundled with this term negative globalism. And while I can assure you that my friends are good and honourable people trying hard to make the world a better place and working on very difficult problems, they, do, they are a far cry from ScoMo's quiet Australians living in the Shire and Western Sydney and so forth. So I read this line as him talking directly to us, calling us out. And he's saying to you and me and, and, and many of the people I follow on Twitter who have, who have been critical of his speech... You are all disconnected from the mainstream of Australian society. Defend yourself against this challenge, Alan. You know, what is he missing uh, um, when he's making this assertion? Well, it's a very sort of broad brush to tar us with, really, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, elite opinions and attitudes vary all over the place, mm. from the left uh, to the right. And I really don't think of myself... I'm, I'm sure you're right that, well, I'm sure by any you know, definition, anyone who has the sort of jobs I've had and uh, and is on a, a podcast with you, <laughs> uh, Darren, is a, is a member of of an elite of some sort. But I, but I really don't think of myself as a globalist. I don't think of myself as anything other than a cheerleader for creative Australian statecraft that advances our interests and protects our values. I mean, that's always been um, what I, I, I'm about. I've never thought of myself as a Davos uh, man. <laughs> so he, he, he would need to be much more precise about what he meant by uh, the disconnection of elite opinion and, uh, and attitudes uh, from mainstream uh, opinion for me to really know how to respond adequately to that. <laughs> okay, uh, that's very well said. I, I want to close just with a, a story. I think back to Tony Abbott's welcoming speech when hosting the G20 Leaders Summit in Brisbane, I think it was about five years ago, before the craziness of the past few years. 
And I remember thinking at the time that he was a bit of an embarrassment because he's welcoming you know, the 19 other heads of the most powerful, largest countries in the world, including Barack Obama, Angela Merkel, and of course, Vladimir Putin, who listeners might remember, he was supposed to shirt front over the, over the shooting down of MH17. And he's indulging himself in this welcoming speech, recounting his four main election promises, repealing the carbon tax, stopping the boats, building roads and balancing the budget. And then towards the end, he talks about higher education and healthcare. And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, Tony, you've got the leaders of the world as your captive audience. And all you want to do is talk about price signals and healthcare. Could you be any more parochial? Any, any more inward looking, you know, to use a, a description you raised, Alan. Reflecting on that and, and all that's happened over the past few years, I'm actually now viewing that speech in a bit of a different light. Um, and I went back and read what he, or his remarks. And earlier in the speech, Abbott said the following, quote, The world is looking to all of us right now to try to demonstrate to an uncertain and at times anxious world that there are people who know what they're doing that there are people who have a plan, a plan for growth and for jobs. That's our challenge, to leave this G20 meeting in 48 hours' time, having instilled more confidence in the people of the world that there is a better and brighter future for all of us." End quote. And so, to finish on this thought, you know, for all of his faults, and there of course are many, I think Abbott understood that if you couldn't tell regular folks why they should care about your agenda, why it was relevant to their lives, they would ignore you and they would vote you out. Therefore, I think I will remember Morrison's lowly address last night as a pivotal moment, not just you know, for the, the reasons you gave, Alan, possibly turning Australian foreign policy in a different direction, but also as a moment where Scott Morrison was able to use the same instincts for retail politics that made him prime minister while channeling you know, Tony Abbott's and I guess before him John's, John Howard's instinct to try to connect with a wider general public, to sort of try to diagnose one of the key threats of international order um, and possibly, as unsavoury as elements of it may be, offer us a pathway out. On that note, um, thanks for, for calling in, Alan. Uh, and and th- thanks for leaving us on that wildly uh, optimistic note, Darren. Yeah, I, I think, Alan, that Morrison has called himself a, an optimist. And I think that uh, you know, we're trying to find a silver lining uh, in these dark times. We, we, we must all agree with Tony Abbott that uh, we have people there who can uh, show that they know what they are doing. <laughs> Okay, well, that's all for today's emergency episode of the Australia in the World podcast. As always, we want to thank AAIA intern James Hain for his help with research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon.